We're going to finish up our study in the book of Esther today by talking about celebrating well. And if you, um, like me, if you've been around church people before, you might know something we need help on, right? And we're not always good at celebrating well. Anybody ever been to a party of a religious person? It's like, not always great, right? We're not good at it, so we need some help. But I think, the, I think the God's Word has some help for us, so we're going to look at that. But before we do, I just want to recap this story briefly and tie just a couple of things that I've been pleading with you about as far as community group and just the, the intentionality that God has for you in your life. And so here we have this grand epic, and if you are just joining us, then you've missed a, an incredible story, and, and it's one that you could read pretty quickly in, in one setting in the book of Esther, and I'm going to encourage you to do so, and you can catch up with sermons online. But as we wrap up this incredible story, one of the main themes that we hope to gain from this book is that even in the midst of a broken and messy and chaotic world, when God doesn't seem to be present, or even in the case of this book, his name is not even mentioned, when his people, who are supposed to be living the way that he's laid out and reflecting his image to the world, when they seem to have forgotten about him completely and we're not sure what they're doing, when all of that is happening, when it seems as, as though even God's people are threatened by Government legislation and, and things are beyond hope. The point of Esther is that that is never true, that we are never beyond hope, that God has not abandoned us. He has not abandoned or forgotten his promises, that he is faithful and he will uh, stay committed to his promises, that he will stay committed to his redemption of this broken world. So we can depend on him. We can look to him even when it's really, really unclear what he's up to. That's one of the big uh, main ideas of this book. But through this commitment to, the, broken, to re- the redemption of this broken world, one of the things we see is that he chooses to use people like you and I, ordinary people, right? People that are struggling, people that have failed to live up to what God had for them, and yet God intervenes and changes people and then uses them in mighty ways. Here we have two people, Esther and Mordecai, um, who aren't by any means pictures of morality, right? Um, we see them doing some questionable things early in the book, but God changes them and then he uses them in his grand story of history. He uses them in, in mighty ways. They're really, this epic story is centered on how God uses these two people. And, and the, the famous line from the book is that Esther was brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. And so, as I said, I want to tie together a couple of things. And the first of, of which is that throughout this book, I've been really imploring you to see that God has a purpose for your life. That you're, it's not just your accidental wondering, that you're not just here wandering through life, waiting for this grand thing. A lot of us just think, well, one day I'll, I'll see my calling, my purpose. But here's the thing. Our purpose and what God has for us often happens in the ordinary ins and outs of our life. And so what I've tried to help you see is that, that God has you living in 2019 in the time that you do, living where you do, going to school where you do, working where you work, living where you live, uh, recreating where you rec- recreate with your kids, doing all the 15 sports that they're doing. All that is on purpose, right? For a reason, for such a time as this, that he has a purpose for your life. And then the second thing that I've been doing all at the same time is the last few weeks inviting you to join a community group if you're not in one, saying that, that so much of what God has for us to uh, experience through him as a part of following Christ, happens outside of this time on a Sunday morning. It happens as we do life together, and we try to do that most of, uh, mostly through our community groups here at The Journey. So if you're not a part of those, we've been begging you to, to get in one, and here's why. It's because all throughout the book of Esther, I've had a couple people as I've talked about this book this, this week make note of how th- who you surround yourself with has huge bearings on how your life pans out, right? Like that, who you're influenced by, who you're surrounded by, in your, who's your inner circle has huge implications for how your life... You see it with King Xerxes, right? King Ahasuerus. 
or King Xerxes, the same guy, two different names. Um, we see it when, when things, when, when he's a coward, he's immature, he doesn't know what to do. His wife uh, humiliates him in public, and who does he go talk to? The Bible just calls them young men. Well, just quick, you know, if you forgot, guys, if you want marriage advice, don't go talk to your bros who have never been there before. It's a bad idea. You're going to want to look to somebody who's been down the road a little bit, right? You know, it's got some wisdom for you about how to, you know, not be an imbecile. But he does it. And, and over and over again, we see him gathered uh, at the council of, you know, idiots, honestly. And they make really bad decisions, and then they celebrate them having a drink. It's foolishness all throughout the Bible, right? All throughout this particular book. And then we see Esther, who has kind of been a passive bystander and is brought into this moment of, of tension and brought into this moment of crisis for her people. And it is through the voices of Mordecai and some others that, that she is able to see, oh, yeah, God has brought me here for this moment, for this purpose. My big idea, what I want you to take away, from, one of the things I want you to take away from this book is that I believe that it is not an overstatement to say that God has you where he has you for such a time as this. That he wants to use you for his kingdom. But oftentimes, we're going to miss out on how he wants to use us. Or as John Piper said, we'll miss out on our Esther moments if we're not in community. Because it's through the voices of other people. It's through the truth-bearing and the, the burden-bearing of other people that we can see the way that God is calling us into his great adventure. So there's so much that he has for us. And it happens in, as we do messy life together in community. So... We would just implore you to ask questions, get involved. If you haven't, there's a board out there, out back. You can get on our website, on our app, and check out when groups meet. Message the leader, ask some questions. Find somebody sitting next to you, somebody you know. Ask them what group they go to. Go with them. Uh, we want you to get involved. Um, if you have questions, please, please, please stop. Somebody with a name tag, we'd love to help you get engaged. So that's just uh, all for free. Now we want to get to our last bit of Esther. And I've, as I mentioned um, several times throughout this scripture, there was... Many, many church fathers, and th for centuries, nobody wrote about the book of Esther. There's, no, there's not a lot of commentaries, and still there's not a lot of commentaries. And the ones that there are, they don't really disagree on what to do with Esther. And uh, to the point that there was a few church uh, early, like uh, some of the reformers, I think it was Martin Luther or John Calvin I, that said, like, I don't like the book. In fact, I'd rather it never have been put in the canon of Scripture in the first place. Like, it, it just, he didn't like it, right? And there's lots of others that they didn't really know what to do with it. They kind of avoided it. Well, why is that? Well, God's name's not mentioned. The characters are, you know, have moral ambiguity at best. Um, and people just, it's not real clear what to do with it. But one of the main justifications, a uh, couple things. One is what I already mentioned, that you could see God's hand of providence whenever working, even if it's not real clear and his name is not mentioned. That's one reason why we believe it's in the, in the, uh, the canon of Scripture. But secondly... The one that is most easy for everybody to agree on is that it gives explanation for the Jewish festival of Purim, right? That this is a festival that Jews had long observed, and yet it wasn't given in the first five books of the Bible called the Torah uh, by Moses. It wasn't one of the prescribed festivals from that time, and yet they've observed it for years. And, it, and the reason it wasn't given then is because it came about through this the events of the book of Esther here. And so this is the only account for why the Jews observe Purim. The festival, the two-day festival that they, they do, even Orthodox Jews still do today. Uh, however, and so that's one of the, that's the easiest explanation for people. They say, well, the reason Esther's in the Bible is just to give explanation for why uh, the festival of Purim exists. And there's, I don't know what to do with it beyond that, but there's that. And so, honestly, we, most of you, most, you know, have probably never heard of the festival of Purim. It's not, you know, a real big part of your life. So you didn't really need explanation. And if I'm being honest, I thought about just ending the series after last week's 
passage and going, you know what, okay, we're good. We don't really need to address that there. But then I remembered something about the intentionality of God and writing in celebrations into his people's lives. I remember this just, a, I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago, whenever a family here in our church had a 25-year uh, anniversary and vow renewal, and it was a celebration, it was a party, and I remember thinking, like, man, God is pleased with this. God writes, like, he commands his people to celebrate often, and I think we've just, we've lost that. I kind of scolded another couple in our church that had a 50-year a couple weeks ago, and I was like, and they're just like, ah, oh, no big deal, and I'm like, no, it's a huge deal, like, we should be throwing you a party, like, 50 years is amazing, and in today's world, we need to celebrate anniversary, we need to we, God, God is a God of celebration, and I think we forget that a lot of times. And so uh, because of that, because I need this reminder, I thought, man, let's, let's look at celebrating well. Because I think the, the story here in Esther and the way that what happens naturally when these people have this victory that, that they've experienced over their enemies, they just start celebrating naturally, right? They weren't necessarily told to do that. They just start doing what comes natural. They celebrate. Well, then God writes it into law. He says, no, no. I want you to not just do this now. I want you to do this every year. I want you to remember it. And so I think there's something that, that we need to be reminded of, of God's intentionality around celebrations. The Old Testament is really full of feasts, festivals, and celebrations. And, and so I want us to look at that today here and, and to see if, you, if you've been, I, I can't recap the whole story, but the Jews have gone from, this is a full reversal where the Jews looked as though uh, genocide was, government issued and they were all going to be done away with and now it's been reversed to where their enemies have been the ones that have been done away with they have conquered and their uh, man Mordecai is in power and it's been a complete reversal and they're all celebrating at what God has done and so this feast gets inaugurated so verse 20 Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were all the provinces so what was happening is that they were all just doing this naturally right they have their day of victory and then they just start throwing parties and celebrating with one another and Mordecai is in power now. He's the second in command. And again, we, we know the king just gives his signet ring and goes, yeah, yeah, y'all just do that. He doesn't want to make a lot of decisions. So Mordecai is making the decisions. Him and Esther get together, and they start writing letters and saying, okay, this is a good thing. And in fact, we're going to make it a law thing. All right, so um, the whole kingdom of Persia, this is a pagan kingdom. Now, uh, every Jew throughout this whole pagan kingdom of Persia is commanded now to celebrate this day when God gave the Jews' victory over their enemies. So um, we see there's actually two days, and that, that was explained last week is because the people in the capital had an extra day of fighting, and so they celebrated the, ne- the next day. There's two days of celebration is what we see. Um, and, and as I said, God takes what they're doing naturally and flips it into a formality. And here's, here's what I want to, to look at first is that God is a God of celebration, and he doesn't just like... He doesn't just, like, tolerate their parties and their celebrations and their festivals or or begrudgingly just, like, approve of them. Like, well, okay, if you really want to do that, like, I'll let you get away with it. Like, I think we miss something about the character of God. He's not just even, he's not even just suggesting, hey, you guys might want to gather together every now and then and have a party or a festival. He, He literally writes it into the life of his people when he's setting up how they should live. He, he, he commands it. He's not just suggesting it. He's not just tolerating it. He commands that his people be a people of celebration. We need to, like, we can't miss this. We, there's, there's something that God has for us here. Uh, there's an article linked in your, um, on the This Weekend portion of your app by Desiring God, and in it, Randy Alcorn 
uh, says this. He says, it's amazing. When you look at the scripture, you see all of these passages in the Old Testament about the parties and the feast. And, and, and that's what feasts were. They were parties. And they would often involve sacrifices, but most of the time was spent eating and drinking and basically having fun and taking time off. You see in Leviticus 23, 40 that God says, you sh- this is God's word. You shall take the first day of the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and, b- and boughs of leafy trees and of willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. This is a seven-day party of rejoicing in God, right? There's, they're rejoicing in what God has done and his provision. And the Old Testament is full of God-ordained celebrations for Israelites. God built in, and so this was just a festival. Like, so it's the little ordinary things that we should be celebrating, that God even provides us food, right? That he causes food. Like, if you look around Southern Illinois right now, there's corn and beans growing up everywhere. They're ready to be harvested. Like, we should be celebrating that God causes that to happen, right? Like, we can't, like, we, you know, farmers can plant. They can, they can, you know, prepare the soil. They can do all those things. But God is the one that causes those things to grow. So he, he commands his people to celebrate those sorts of things, but then also the, the things uh, in which he divinely intervenes, like the Exodus story, like the Passover story, where he says, you need to remember what I've done. So he writes this into their, um, the rhythms of their life. Alcorn goes on to say, God built into Israel's calendar seven holidays, amounting to about 30 days of feast per year. Good news, guys. You need to listen to this. Add the weekly Sabbaths together, along with the 30 days of feast, and, and the total comes around 80 days of feasting and rest annually. Then you let, add on the festival of Purim, who, who comes later, and then Hanukkah, plus weddings and birth celebrations, amount of time off, celebration, and worship exceeded around three months annually for the people of God in the Old Testament. So here's the deal. God gives us celebrations. He gives us. He doesn't just tolerate it. He's not just like okay with it. He has gifted us with celebrations. And here's why. First reason. He wants us to be a people of gladness and joy. You need to hear that, church. Like, we get this wrong so often. Like, church people, Christian people, like, sometimes we're the most grumpy, cynical. I don't want to be around those people. You know what I mean? You've met anybody like that? Right? You're like, dude, I thought you believed in, like, Jesus or something. It sounds like, like you just don't know what to do with like, We're so cynical and so whatever. Like, God wants his people to be a people of gladness and joy. He commands it. It's all throughout scripture. He literally tells them to rejoice. Like, whether you feel like it or not, take these days, throw this party, and rejoice. Like, it's not like, hey, if you feel, you know, if things are going, no, no, every year on these times, rejoice. Rejoice. We see that commanded in the, in the New Testament, right? Paul's telling his people, hey, rejoice. Rejoice. So God gives us celebration. So as Christians, we should be the best at celebrating. That's often not true. You think about it as a kid, you've grown up, you know, and you're in that world of partying as a, as a young, you know, teenager or whatever, and you get invited to this church kid, this religious party, or you get invited to like the cool jocks party. And which one's going to be more fun if you're just objectively observing, right? Like it seems like that crowd's probably, like we don't often associate Religious people with having good sense of what, you know, fun is and celebration. And yet we should be the people of gladness and joy. We should be the best at partying. We should be the best at celebrating. Now, as we'll talk about in a minute, partying needs to be redeemed because it carries some negative connotations. But we should be a people of gladness and joy. This is, should not be foreign to us. Unfortunately, oftentimes as religious people do, like we can take a good thing, right, and ruin it with a bunch of rules. Right? You guys... 
have seen this. You've probably heard me talk about uh, even the church we were at before, the church where my wife and I got married at, had literally written it into their bylaws that if you had your wedding reception there, you could only have three dances. Like, man, talk about just ruining a good thing, right? Like, why? And, and you're like, well, that include the first dance, mother, father, daughter, and son and mother? Yeah, it did. So that's all they wanted you to do. It was a joke about Baptists, but they said, you know why Baptists don't like sex, right? They're afraid it's going to lead to dancing. We ruin, like, religious people have gotten really good at ruining good things. And you can use sex, and you can use money, you can use alcohol, you can use a lot of these things where God has given them to us as a good thing for us to enjoy. And then we ruin them with a bunch of rules, right? And listen, I'm not saying, like, that there's not, like, it is a good thing, and it can be turned into a negative thing, but, like, that, that doesn't mean we got to make, like, ruin it with a bunch of rules. Like, we just have to... Know what God has commanded us not to do, but then enjoy the thing, right? I heard one pastor compare it to, like, it's, it's like birthday cake. Like, I don't need a lot of rules with my birthday cake. Because I had a little one-year-old's first birthday yesterday. We didn't tell him about, like, just put the cake in front of him. Let him have fun, right? But religious people, they want to be like, here's the cake. And I know I'm quoting this from another guy, but it's really funny. He's like, here's a cake, and I know you want a chocolate, but we're religious, so you get white. And then here, you got to eat it on this, on Tuesday, not on Wednesday, not on Thursday. You got to eat it on Tuesday. You got to eat it between 2.15 and 2.17, and only then. And you got to eat just a little bit, and you just ruin the whole thing. You can't have sprinkles. You can't have ice cream to go with it. And you just like all these rules. And before you get done with it, you're like, well, I don't even know if I want the cake anymore. Like, like you've totally sucked the life out of it. We can do, like, we're known to do that by over-legalizing things like this. But here's the deal. God has given us celebrations because he wants us to be a people of gladness and joy. Now, as we, we get a little bit further, um, we read, again, as I said earlier, he turns what we do naturally into something that we should do intentionally with rhythm. But let's read on down. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do, verse 23, and Mordecai had written to them in Haman, um, the Agagite, the son of that dude with a really long name, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And they cast pur, which is uh, dice, which is how the festival got its name. They casted pur to see uh, what day the Jews would be uh, killed on um, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing. So this is just putting in writing what they're celebrating, that there was a day where the Jews had an enemy. He rolled some dice and said, on that day, we're going to kill all of those, all of those people. And God took it and flipped the whole thing. He brought it before the king, and his evil plan that he devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his own sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of all that they had faced in this matter, and of what it and what had happened to them, you need to think about, you know, again, always important to remember the humanity of this, what these people have gone through, getting this message that they're all going to be killed, right? Not just the men, the women and the children as well. And then it's all been turned around, like their emotional uh, roller coaster that they've been on here. So all that they've been through and all that they had faced on this matter and what had happened to them, verse 27, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and, and all who joined them, and without fail, that they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at that time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, that the days of Purim should never fail, never fall into disuse amongst the, amongst the Jews, nor should their commemoration of these days cease amongst their descendants. So again, God takes 
what they're doing naturally, writes it into law. He says, I want you to, I want you to celebrate regularly. And, okay, so first thing we remember is that he puts this into place, and it's for a purpose. He wants us to celebrate so that we remember his works. And here's where partying really needs to be redeemed in our culture. Because when we say party, right, particularly when it comes to the use of alcohol, there's this idea around the word party, especially in our context here in Illinois, when it's in an adult setting, that there's likely a certain image that kind of comes to mind for you of people that, like when you think of a party, and you're not thinking about a little kid's party, but if you think of a party as an adult, often, likely, for most of us, the image that comes to mind is a bunch of people uh, gathered together, downing a bunch of cheap alcohol, racing themselves into oblivion, right? That they're there, and they're drinking, and they're not drinking just to enjoy one another. They're drinking to get drunk, right? And that is very often the context or the, the, the connotation that comes with the word party. And what's going on in these sorts of parties is that they're partying to forget, right? Right? Country songs sing about it all the time, right? What I came here to forget or whatever. There's friend, you know, washed away my, there's just all kinds of them, right? Friends in low places, just on and on. You could just go. But they're partying to forget, but there should be a difference amongst us. There should be a difference amongst us Christians that, that we celebrate to remember, not to forget. We have, are different because we celebrate not to forget, but instead to remember. i got to give credit to <clears throat> Anthony Harris. This quote comes from him this week as we were talking about it. He goes, yeah, we don't party to forget. We party to remember. And that's such a key point for us that we're not coming together to wash our troubles away with alcohol just to get a few moments of you know, forgetting about it. We come together to celebrate with one another and to declare God's deeds and to remember what he's done. So we, ce- we celebrate to remember. But listen, this requires intentionality. I want you to hear the language in there. Verse 27, the Jews were firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them without fail that they would keep these two days according to what was written. And it says that it should never fall away even as generations pass amongst all their descendants. There's intentionality there that ensures that these people are going to not just celebrate, not just have a holiday, but they're going to remember what God has done. And listen, this is a a piece that we need. Because, man, we, we all, like holidays prompt an explanation, right? How many of you guys just had weird conversations with your kids about Labor Day? They get a day off, and they're like, it's Labor Day. What in your, how many of your kids ask you what Labor Day was just recently? Mine did. That's a fun conversation, because I don't really know, right? It's like, I don't, I don't know. Day off. Don't ask questions. Just enjoy. You know? No, I'm kidding. I, I did have to Google it, but because I kind of knew, but I'm like, I don't know how to explain it to y'all. Anyway, so that's why we have holidays, though. They should like, they should prompt questions, and we should be rehearsing and retelling what, what's going on in those moments, right? That's, that's the purpose of them. But so often, they just get lost, right? And we just, we, we just do that. We just celebrate. We just go, wow, I mean, it's a day off. We don't really ask questions, right? We just do it. Um, and, and you know these holidays get distorted, Fourth of July, right? It, it's there for a reason. We should be remembering, right, and celebrating this country that we have and the freedoms that we have, right? And that's why we have fireworks. But for many of us, it just becomes about fireworks and a day off, like a long weekend, right? But no, there should be intentionality to this where we remember intentionally what's going on. Um, Veterans Day is another good example. Not, not to even mention 
Easter and Christmas and Christian holidays, but if you just look at these secular holidays that are in our calendar, how they get diminished without a lack of intentionality. And actually, I was, I was talking to Anthony about this as well, and many of you know he's a vet, and he was talking about how Veterans Day just irks him because people just take the day off and they don't actually reflect on the holiday. And so I said, well, what do you, what do, you do that's different? Because I'm, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm guilty of that, but I don't really know how to, I don't know, like I wasn't taught a good rhythm of celebrating veterans on that day. So what do you do? And he said, well, man, we, we usually take, take our kids, uh, we go get some flags, and we take our kids and walk through a cemetery, and we kind of explain what's going on. We put some flags on, on the vets' graves. And I was like, man, that's well done, right? Like, that's a good way to celebrate Veterans Day. That's the meaning of that, right? We blunder holidays all the time when we just take them as a festival. We take them as a day, but we don't talk about the reason. We don't remember intentionally so here's the deal. For the Jews, you can read in history, the Jews, for the festival of Purim, for generations to come now, they would all gather together. They would gather their families together. They would gather all the kids into one big room, and they would read the book of Esther every year for the festival of Purim. And, and they would give all the kids these rattles. And, and they would tell them, okay, there's this, there's this bad guy in the book of Esther named Haman. And every time you hear Haman's name, I want you to rattle the rattle. And the kids would, would do that to drown out the, the, the bad guy, Haman's name. And they would read the book of Esther and they would re- retell the story. And they would talk about how God had delivered them. And there was intentionality in their celebration. And then they're going to have a party, right? They're having a feast and they're, they're having good food and good drink. And they're, they're having a party and they're teaching their kids how to celebrate. And they're reminding themselves of what God has done. And all of this has a purpose we have to be intentional about remembering. He, so God gives us, gives us celebrations because he wants us to be a people of gladness and a people of joy. Secondly, he wants us to uh, remember his works. Again, we celebrate, we party to remember, not to forget. But that takes intentionality. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end as we kind of wrap up. Then lastly, though, he gives us celebrations because he wants us to be ready for what is to come. He gives us celebrations because he wants our hearts and our minds to be familiar with and to remember and for it to be fresh on our minds the things that God has done, the way that he showed up in the past, the way that he has saved us, the, way that he, the things that he has promised us. And as we rehearse these things and we remember the things that God has done, it informs our heart in such a way that our emotions drop. Like, here's the deal. We're about to come up, like, this week is um, the anniversary of 9-11. And most of you were alive in 2001 when that, that terrible day happened. And, and if, you, if you take a moment and reflect on that, there's emotion attached, right? There's emotion attached to that day. And, and you, you, you felt something. You felt something. And a lot of times we need to be reminded of that as we go forward on policy and as we make this, like all the, like we need to be reminded of those days as we're thinking about things because we get removed from them and we forget. The same is true. Like that's why God puts these things in so we will remember what he's done. We will remember what he's brought us out of. We will remember our former condition. Paul says this over and over again to his people. Remember that you We're like them once, without hope, separated from God, alienated, right? But God has intervened. God has made a way. The New Testament is full of language like that. He wants us to remember where we've been, how hopeless we were, and how God intervened. So he wants us to rehearse these things, to celebrate these things, so that we remember and we are ready for what is to come. We see this in the book of Esther. If you remember earlier in the story, when the edict was, was brought forth about Haman and how all of the Jews were to be killed, every man, woman, and child. 
that news is given to them on a particular day. Does anybody remember? It was given to them on the eve of the Passover. Remember that from earlier in the story? It was given to them on the eve of the... So here they are. The Jewish people are going to celebrate one of their biggest cultural holidays. Think Christmas for us. Like whether you're a believer or not, you, like everybody did this, 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 uh, this holiday, right? So here they are. They're about to remember how God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. They're about to celebrate how God passed over them through the blood of the Lamb. All of this is... And then they get this news. They get this news that there's going to be a day in a few months when they're all going to be killed. Now, there's a couple different ways you can react to that. Right? If you're them in that moment and you get that news when you're just about to celebrate what God's done in the past and then you get that news, you can, you can go one of two ways. One is you can go, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I can't believe that God is allowing this to happen. I, I don't know where God is. I don't know what he's doing. I, I can't see any way forward. Here's this day that we're supposed to celebrate what he's done, and now he's abandoned us, and we're going to die, and, and you can spiral into this hopelessness, right, and be depressed. Or, or, if your heart has been prepared, if you, if you remember the reason that you celebrate Passover, you remember the condition and the state of the people before they were in before God rescued them through the Passover, if you remember why you're celebrating, if you remember what God has done in those moments, then maybe, just maybe, you're able to muster up some hope and go, I don't know what God's doing, but I know that in the past, he's never let me down. I know that in the past, he's held his promises to be true. And so I don't see the way forward here, but I'm gonna trust in him, and I'm gonna worship in him, and I'm gonna put my faith in him. And these celebrations inform what, how we react in those moments when we get bad news. When we get the call about loss or we get the call about a diagnosis. When we're not sure how we're going to go on. When we're not sure if our marriage is going to make it. When we're not sure if our kid is going to fill in the blank. In those moments, in those dark times, God wants our hearts to have been conditioned by celebrating, by remembering by intentionally telling, retelling of the story, to keep it fresh, to remember who God is. So he puts these in place. Again, he doesn't just suggest them. He doesn't say, hey, if you feel like it, you can celebrate every year on Passover. If you feel like it, you can celebrate every year on this day of the harvest. If you feel like it, you can celebrate every year on the day of Purim. He says, no, 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 you're going to do it. You're going to do it. As we close, I just want to ask us a few questions to make this personal. We see that the, the, the story ends here by just recounting what has happened. That Queen Esther, the, the orphan Jewish girl, has no business being the queen of Persia, ends up there, and God uses her. That Mordecai, this guy who just adopted this girl that it was his cousin's, like, he's now in authority. Like These things start happening, and, and they have the power to enact this this legislation, and again, they have, they have this power and influence, so what are they going to do? They're just going to enjoy it for themselves? No, they, they choose to rescue all the people, and then they choose to make a decree to change the future so that everybody will remember this. And so they just put this into law, and that's what the rest of the passage is talking about here. Verse 31, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they have obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. And then it, it's going to close by, by talking about King Xerxes and 
imposes a tax on the land, the coastlands, and all the acts of his power and might, the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. This is a guy who doesn't, who had no reason to be in power, and yet God put him there. God flipped the script and reversed the fate of the Jews. And Mordecai is a symbol of that, that he becomes this powerful figure in Persia. For Mordecai the Jew, verse 3, was the second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great amongst the Jews and popular within the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Again, these figures are not heroes for us to hold up and, and follow. They're pointing us to the greatest hero. They're pointing us ahead when the greater Esther, when the greater Mordecai is going to come, and his name is Jesus. And like Mordecai, that late, that seeks the welfare of his people. Jesus, it says in Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he laid down his life and came and sought our welfare. He came and lived in our mess. He came and gave his life so that you and I could be rescued, so that you and I, who are without hope because of our sin. And listen, if you're new and you're like, what, you and I, what are we talking about? Here's what we believe about the Bible is that there's no one who is good. There's no one who stands before God and goes, you know what? I'm, I'm more good than I am bad. I think I deserve to come into heaven. The Bible says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of the standard in which God made us to live. And as a result of that, we are all damned and doomed and on our way to a devil's hell without the intervention of a Savior. That is our hopeless situation outside of Jesus, and yet, but God, right? And yet, God intervenes by sending Jesus to be our Savior, the greater Mordecai, the greater Esther, and he has gave himself up. He sought the welfare of all his people, and he's made a way. And he is seated, like Mordecai, in a place of power. Unlike Mordecai, it's an even greater place of power. He's at the right hand of the Father, sovereignly ruling over all that we know in this universe. Graciously inviting any who would come for pardon to receive such and to be a part of his family. And here's the good news. It's all headed toward a great feast. It's all headed toward one day. Revelation 19 says one day he's going to come back and he's going to do away with all that is evil and heaven is going to come down and meet this new earth that he's redeemed and washed clean and we're going to live with him forever. And to celebrate, to, to commemorate all of that, we're going to have this huge feast. It's called the wedding feast of the Lamb where Jesus is the groom and he's united with his church, the bride, and we're going to have this massive party. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be food for days and this massive table and good wine, not like cheap wine, like good wine. <laughs> and it's going to be amazing, and we're going to celebrate, and we're not just going to be high-fiving, like we're not going to be telling stories about how cool we were. We're going to be talking about what God has done. We're going to be telling stories about how God saved this person, and how God did this, and God did that, and Jesus did that. Like, we're going to be celebrating the King of Kings forever, and it's going to be this massive and epic party. It's going to be awesome. That's the, the future of those who have placed their hope in Jesus Christ. So, that's where we're headed that's why he tells us to celebrate. And so I want, I want you to ask yourself this. Do you have rhythms of celebration? Do you know how to celebrate? If you're like me, you need some help with this. Man, I'm, I can be really cynical. I can be like, I need some help with this. So I want to ask you this. Every week when we come in here, we sing songs that retell the gospel. We sing songs that tell of what God has done, of how he's rescued us. Do you 
sing as though it is true? Like, do you sing as though we've actually been saved? Like, do you let your heart celebrate in that way? Do you let your, do you worship with abandon and do you just celebrate God? Like, or are you just real reserved and worried about what people are thinking? Like, just think about that. Each week we should be celebrating like these built-in rhythm into our, our gathering as, as a people. How about at home? Do you have rhythms of remembering and celebrating in your home? Some people are really good at this. And, so, and some, some struggle with this. But do you have rhythms of remembering and celebrating? Do your kids, here's of course, do your kids know your testimony? Have you told your kids what God's done in your life? How he saved you the first time? How he continues to provide for you? Do you celebrate for him? Is that, like, and, and even giving thanks before a meal, like that can become just this perfunctory thing that we do over and over again, right? Or it could be redeemed. And we could talk about how our kids, like we could talk to our kids about how God has provided for us. Right? How God has been faithful. How God has given us these jobs. How God has showed up in these times when we didn't know. Like, do we do that? Do, do, do our kids hear from us about how, do our spouses, do, our, those around, do they hear from us about how God has intervened in our life? Do we have a posture of celebration and remembering in our, in our families, in our day-to-day? Do your kids know how to celebrate well? I should have asked that. I, I'm going to be so bold to tell you, teach your kids to dance. Some of y'all are like, I don't know how. I don't either. Man, we have some dance parties in my house. Dad looks like a fool. And my kids are getting to the age now where they're starting to watch. We were riding in the Jeep this weekend, and we're, watching, we're listening to some Christian hip-hop, and I'm, I'm, da- I'm looking at a fool, man, going through Creel Springs. They're all like, man, you were in the wrong place, buddy. But anyway, it was fun. But my kids are like at this place where they're kind of grinning, and they're like, I don't know if I want to do that. And I'm like, just let it go. Like, I want, it, I want them to, to lose abandon and not be worried about what people are thinking and learn to celebrate the goodness of our God. Teach your kids to dance. You don't know how to learn. Or just do what you do, right? I remember, I'll tell you, I think I've told this before, but the first time I went to a wedding up in St. Louis when we were, the journey up there, I was used to, again, what I'd said, where they had rules about what you couldn't, like, how many dances you could have. And I go there, man, and, like, my campus pastor was, like, breakdancing on the floor. And I was like, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. I don't know how to do that, but I want to learn. And I got, I'll get hurt, but it'll be fine. Like, it was fantastic, man. It was a party. People were celebrating. They weren't getting drunk. There was no sin to be repented of at the end of the night. They were celebrating, and it was good. You know how to do that. We need to figure it out together. Some of us just got to figure it out together. It's okay. One of the ways we're going to do that here at The Journey, uh, and we're just going to be figuring it out, out together, but one piece that we're going to implement that you're going to be hearing more about in the coming weeks is we're going to start doing a, a first Sunday night service. So the first Sunday night of each month, we're going to gather together all community groups, everybody from the church. You don't have to be in a community group, but it's going to be instead of meeting community group that week, we're all going to gather together, and we're going to have a time where we're going to eat every, every month. We're going to eat together. Sometimes we'll potluck it. Sometimes we'll just bring stuff. We're going to eat together, and we're going to celebrate, and then we're going to have a service where there's not... There's not going to be a full sermon. We're going to talk about what God has done, what he's leading us to. And, and then we're going to talk about some things. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to celebrate together. We're going to build that into the life of our church. So starting in October, first Sunday night of each, each month, we're going to gather together here at The Journey. And it's going to be fun. We're, so we're going to, start to try to do this together where we remember what God has done. We reflect on it. We tell stories. We share testimony. We pray for one another because our God is faithful and he's called us to this. It's going to be good. Anniversaries. Do you, do you celebrate well? Like, I want you to think about how can you intentionally work celebration into your life? 
And don't just take this as a good word, but like start dreaming with your, with your family. Start budgeting to buy some good food, right? To buy, to, to throw a good party. Budget that. Be intentional about it. Find your friends. Teach your kids how to celebrate because we have good news. Amen? Yes, listen, the world is hard. And that's what we've talked a lot about in this sermon series. The world's jacked up. And there's going to be a lot of times where we need to mourn. And I'm not saying that we as Christians just put this fake smile on and in the midst when the world's just falling apart behind us, we just smile, you know. I'm not saying that. We have emotional depth and range. The, the Bible's full of lamenting and, and crying out as much as it is of celebrating. But he, he commands both. So we need to get good at both. And here's the deal. Even, no, no matter how bad the world gets, how bad our own circumstances get, we have good news. And we have to tell ourselves that. We have to remind ourselves that we were lost and without any hope outside of Jesus. And when we, when we actually go there, when we remember that, we remember our former state, when we remember our hopelessness, when we actually let that be a reality, we should be led to rejoice. Amen? When we sing the songs that we sing, we should rejoice. When we tell our testimony to our kids, no matter how drastic it is or how boring it is, Jesus has saved you. And in that, we rejoice. May we be a people that reflects that. People of gladness, people of joy. When we celebrate and party well, and may that be infectious. That's a witness. Right? That's a witness. To to a lost and broken world, to ones that only know how to drink to forget, ones that only know how to, you know, whatever, like, that's a witness. If we can be a people who learn to celebrate and to party well and to redeem partying and to invite them into that, like that, that's a big deal. God can use that. Amen? What if we became a people who celebrated well? Let's pray. God, thank you that we have news to celebrate. Thank you for saving us. And may that not be just a mundane statement for us this morning. May you, by your Spirit, take us to the depths of our sin so that we can see how broken we are. And yet, Lord, may you meet us there and bring us to the heights of your grace. May we see just how wonderful you are, just how much you love us, just how great your love for us is. Would you take us there this morning? Would you cause us to rejoice? Would you give us hope, Lord? There there are those that are here that are struggling to just get out of bed. There are those that are here that are not sure they can go another day. There are those that are here that are not sure what they've got themselves into with fill in the blank. And, And we need hope, Jesus. We need it. Would you help us to find it in the gospel this morning? Would you speak even through the words of this song? Would you speak just in this time through one another as we pray for one another? Would you just speak and would you bring hope to us this morning? For the rest of us, Lord, would you bring our hearts to life? Would you, would you remind us that we have joy, that we can be a people of gladness and joy? May we be a people who celebrate well. Lord, work that in us. We look forward to it, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.